everybody. Welcome back. I'm Katie. And I'm Hannah. And this is Suspect, a show where we don't just want to feed you the true crime obsession. But we want to shed some light on stories and situations that don't get a ton of attention. And today we have two really wild stories to share with you. Yes. So on our last podcast, we discussed that our theme was going to be kind of like hometown murders or murders that happen close to where you currently live. So I currently reside in Colorado and Hannah in Florida, and she is going to do a case from around where she is, and I picked a case from around where I currently am. So today I picked John Benet Ramsey, and Hannah, who did you pick? I picked Casey Anthony. Oh, crazy Anthony. Well, I mean, John Benet is like probably one of the most famous unsolved cases in U.S. history. Yeah, and that's the worst part about it is that it's still unsolved. And, I mean, Kaylee Anthony technically is, too, because of the way it went down, but we all really know what happened. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, like, it's 100% solved and the murder got away. But we'll get right. into that later. I 100% agree. Well, I think you went first last week, so I'll go first this week, and we can go ahead and jump on right into it if you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Let me go ahead and pull up my notes. Okay, so the way I'm going to do this case is a little different than what I normally do. I'm just going to give you guys the facts kind of straight. And then there's a lot of different theories about this case. Like Hannah mentioned, the case is unsolved. It happened back in the 90s um, here in Boulder, Colorado. So it hasn't been solved, but there are multiple theories. And as Hannah and I were actually texting about last night, multiple of the theories all make sense. There's so much evidence in this case that it all points in multiple directions and all the different theories and what people um, suspect all make sense at the same time. So it's hard to really determine what truly happened in this case of this little girl. She was only six years old at the time that this happened to her. So I'll tell you my theory, and I'm sure Hannah will want to jump in and tell you her theory. We actually have two different perspectives on the case, which is super interesting, and it makes for a great conversation. I agree for sure. I love talking theories because hardly anyone ever has the exact same thought, except for Casey Anthony's case, of course. Right, right, of course. Everybody has the same thought, <laughs> even people in her family. <laughs> well, great. We're going to go ahead and jump right into the John Bonet case. And like I said, guys, this is pretty heavy. It's super sad. I think any time when you talk about somebody dying, but especially a little girl. So here we go. So John Benet Ramsey was born in 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. She was the younger of two children of Patricia and John Ramsey. She had an older brother named Burke, and he was about five years older than her at the time. And her first name was actually a combination of her father's first and middle name. John Benet was enrolled in kindergarten at High Peaks Elementary School in Boulder, Colorado. John Ramsey, her dad, was a businessman who was the president of Access Graphics, a computer system company. His first marriage ended in divorce in about around 1978, and his two surviving adult children, he had a son and a daughter, lived somewhere else apart from him. And his 22-year-old daughter actually ended up dying in a 1992 car crash, a daughter from his first marriage. So in 1991, John moved with his second wife, Patsy, and his family to Boulder, where Access Graphics headquarters was located at the time. And Patricia Ramsey, also known as Patsy, answered their daughter, 
JonBenet and various child beauty pageants that were held in Boulder. And JonBenet won a lot of these beauty pageants, and I'm not even going to try to read all of these because there is several, so you guys can find all of the titles that she did win here on the Internet if you're particularly interested in that. But one of them was like Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. And a lot of people after this murder ended up talking about how her mother had her enrolled in all these beauty pageants, that Patsy had pageant mother behavior. And if you've watched any of the toddlers and tiaras or anything like that, you know that sometimes they can be pretty aggressive. And also if you look up pictures of JonBenet, like most of the pictures you're going to see of her are actually some of her pageant photos. And it's weird because, like I mentioned, she was super young. She was like five or six years old at the time. And a lot of these pictures were really sexual. And it was kind of a creepy feeling. Like, if you look up some of the pictures, you'll see what I'm saying. Just picture, like, your little sister or something doing pictures like that. Like, it's just, it's very uncomfortable. Have you seen any of those, Hannah? I have seen some of them. Um, And to me, like, at first, they didn't seem odd. But it's also because I grew up in the dance world. And so, like, for me, a lot of those poses and things are the same. But then as an adult, I've started to think about it, and it's like, okay, why? Right. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. I mean, you having a little sister especially can really, like, you just think about your little sister being that age and, like, just having, like, that kind right, yeah, having that kind of, and not that they were posing her body in, like, weird ways, guys, we're not saying that, but just, like, the expression on her face was, like, very provocative, to say the least, I guess. Yeah, it was, like, trying, and I mean, and it might not even be, like, sexual in nature, but it's, like, trying to make her look like an adult, and she just wasn't, and to me, like, in a way, almost is a little bit sexualized, because why else would a child need to look like an adult? Right, exactly, and it's, I feel the same way about, like, we could relate it to the Aaliyah and R. Kelly thing. When our, when um, Aaliyah was, like, 13 or 14, they were trying to make her look like this sexy, like, 20, 21-year-old in the hip-hop industry, you know? So it's, like, mm-hmm. kind of like the same thing, but obviously JonBenet's way younger, so it's worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, on December 26, 1996, in the early morning hours, John and Patsy woke up awoke early to find their six-year-old daughter, John Benet, missing from her bed at their home in Boulder. Patsy and John had woken up early to prepare for a trip when Patsy discovered a ransom note on the stairs, demanding the amount of $118,000 for their daughter's safe return. So the only people to be known in the house on the night of John Benet's disappearance, and you guys know at this point that it unfortunately was a death, were her immediate family. So Patsy and John, her parents, and Burke, her brother, who I mentioned was about 10 years old at the time. So the ransom note, guys, we'll get into that a little bit more, but right now I'm just going to give you kind of the basics um, of what it said. So it contains specific instructions against contacting the police and friends, but Patsy telephoned the police at about 5.52 a.m. And you can listen to this 911 call on YouTube, guys. Um, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people have different theories on it, and nobody can really say how you would react. Hannah and I talked about this. Nobody can say how you would react if something like this awful happened to you, obviously. But it definitely is interesting that sometimes they can try and break down these 911 calls and get a psychology under meeting of it, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, totally. Like, I trust experts 100%. I just know that there have to be outlying situations. But, yeah, totally. Right, 100%. And don't get me wrong, guys. There's definitely times in respect to everyone that is an expert in these different departments. But there is times when experts are wrong, and that's just proven fact that's on record. So it's not 100% that they're all the time right. So that's definitely an interesting perspective as well. But it is nice to see it from both sides and say, okay, I see where this makes sense, but I see where they're just trying to reach a little far here. Totally agree. After Patsy called the police, she also called her family and friends. Two police officers responded to the 911 call and arrived at the Ramsey home within three minutes. They conducted a search of the house but did not find any sign of forced entry. Officer Rick French went to the basement and came to a door that was secured by a wooden latch. He paused for a moment in front of the door, but he made a critical error when he walked away without opening it. He later did explain that he was looking for an exit route used by the kidner. Kidner. What the heck, Hannah? Do you hear me? What is wrong with me? I cannot speak today. This is right in front of me. I'm reading this off my iPad, like not my phone. (laughs) You're good. French later explained that he was looking for an exit route used by the kidnapper, which the closed inside peg rolled out. And what he didn't know is that, unfortunately, John Benet's body was on the other side of this door. Mm. So John, her dad, he made arrangements to actually pay the ransom note, the $118,000. A forensics team was actually dispatched to their house. The team initially believed that the child had been kidnapped and that John Benet's bedroom was the only room in the house that had been sealed off to prevent contamination of evidence. No precautions were taken to prevent contamination of evidence in the rest of the house. Meanwhile, family and the family's ministers arrived at the home to support the Ramseys. Victim advocates also arrived at the scene. Visitors picked up and cleaned surfaces in the kitchen, possibly destroying some of the evidence that actually was there at the time. So a detective that was in Boulder at the time, Linda Arndt, arrived about 8 a.m. with the goal of awaiting the kidnapper's instructions, but there was actually never an attempt by anyone to claim the money in the ransom note. Oh, so something that Hannah and I actually did discuss was with people coming to clean up the evidence, it can look different in two – it can look different. So you can have two different theories on the fact that people were coming over and just kind of cleaning up, even though the investigation wasn't quite done of their household. Um, I was – personally closed-minded to the fact I was like why would they do that like that doesn't make sense I don't understand that like if your little girl was missing like you would want every piece of evidence that you would have like you wouldn't even want to be inside the house and to the police I feel like searched everything you know but Hannah actually gave me another perspective the other day when we were talking about this case and she's 100% right another side is that this is back in the 90s so you know when you have people that are close to you, whether it be family or friends or whoever, people from your church, you know, and you call them in a time of agony and terror, they're obviously going to want to come over and try to help soothe you and bring you peace any way they can. So I'm not saying that's what happened, and I'm not saying that they were cleaning up to cover anything up, but I'm saying that's two perspectives that you can look at on the case of them doing that. Yeah, I mean, like, because – when you look at it initially, it's just like, oh, my gosh, what the heck? Um, I really think the shortcomings there 
are 100% on the police department because, like, once they had access to the crime scene, like, it should have been totally fine to clean it. It's 100%. The police should have stopped it before it ever happened. Um, So, like, the inexperience of the police department on top of just, like, the genuine good-heartedness of, um, you know, like, friends and family. Uh, I mean, and, you know, also, like, it is possible that they were helping the Ramseys clean up the crime scene. Who knows? We don't know because there's so much to this case. <laughs> right, right. And I agree. But even in that, like, manner, if you're thinking about them helping them, cre- like, them helping them cre- clean up the crime scene, like, even if that was what happened, like, I don't think those people would have knowingly done that. So I think that it was just being a genuine, pure, loving person that wanted to help yeah. in a time like that. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, like, those people might yeah. have not known. We don't know what was going on with the family. Okay. Yeah. We don't know really what was going on. So yeah, I definitely like, don't think those people knew. Like you pointed out, like they, I mean, forensic science was like basically limited to fingerprints and blood type and hair matching, which now, I mean, fingerprinting is so reliable, but like blood type basically tells you nothing. Hair matching is kind of a bunk science. So it's just like, you know, forensic science is a whole new frontier at that point. Right. I completely agree. And you're exactly right with it sort of, not sort of, but completely being, if that is what happened with the evidence at that time, like being the police department's fault, because once you're there, like you're there, like you're in charge, you're telling people what to do. Like they called you, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, right. If, if anything was destroyed, you're a hundred percent right. Like that's on your sloppiness at that time. Yeah. But also, a thing I, I saw one time, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, like, jump in. But no, you're fine. I love it. <laughs> I saw one time where they were talking about the Boulder police and how poorly it was handled. But, like, then they were also talking about how murder, like, hardly ever happens in Boulder. And I believe, like, the homicide detective that was over this case, he was, like, brand spanking new and had done maybe, like, a handful of murder cases before he handled you know, the John Benet Ramsey case. So it's like an experience. So like I have some understanding for that, but also it's just like, oh my gosh, if you don't have experience, why wouldn't you call like Denver PD, which is like 30 minutes away? Right, right. Somebody that has the experience and the potential to help you. <laughs> Maybe it's like a jurisdiction problem. I don't know, but either way, I would want some advice from somebody who right. knows what's going on. <laughs> Somebody, FBI, someone. <laughs> yes. Okay, so around 1 o'clock that same day that they noticed John Benet was missing, the detective, Linda Art, asked John and Fleet White, who was a family friend, to search the house to see if anything seemed amiss. They started their search in the basement. John opened the last door, with office, which Officer Frank had overlooked and found his daughter's body in one of the rooms. John Benet's mouth was covered with duct tape, and nylon cord was found around her wrist and neck, and her torso was covered by a white blanket. Benet picked up the child's body and took it upstairs. When John Benet was moved, the crime scene was further contaminated, and critical forensic evidence was disturbed for the returning forensics team. So I want to know personally, Hannah, I'm sorry, guys, listening to this. If this ends up being a longer podcast, do not judge us. These are just really interesting cases. So, Hannah, what do you think about 
and picking up her body and moving it. Like you personally, what do you think? Okay. I have a lot of feelings about this one because, okay, this whole thing, I understand that it looks bad. Believe me, I do. But I see a just bereft father. Like I just see this horrible heartbroken situation, not horrible heartbroken situation, but this heartbreaking situation for this dad. I mean, first of all, like if he is the one who killed her, why the heck would he take police straight to her body? That does not make sense to me because I saw also like the, that room where her body was hadn't been searched at all. So if the room hasn't even been searched or like looked at, obviously because her body hadn't been found, why would he lead them to her body? Like, if he was the killer, he'd just be like, okay, well, they didn't look in there. I'm not going to head that way. Um, so <laughs> that's when I thought about that. But also, like, oh, my gosh. Like, the man at that point thought his daughter was missing, and then he finds her cold, dead body. I would 100% feel like I would just scoop up my baby and just, like, I actually, I don't know what I would do, but I can't say I hold it against him for picking up his baby. I know, I know now, like knowing what I know about forensics and the importance of a crime scene, because I'm a, you know, a crime fan, I would, I would hope that I would never, but like, oh my gosh, you also just like, you find your dead child, like, I, I don't know if I can hold it against any parent, except Casey Anthony, of course. Um, <laughs> for for anything they do, you know, like yeah, yeah. I, think, I mean, I I understand. I think I, I think, think it's, it's tragedy. Hard. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard because, like, you know, it's hard to know. We're in 2020, and this was back in 1996. You know, so that's mm-hmm. a, that's it's so a hard long... to get in that mindset. Right, right. It is, and that's that's a what? A why? I don't know why. I am. That's I a know, 24. We were both. Yeah, we were both still in the womb, so it was like right. 24 years ago. Right, that's what I'm saying. I don't know why it took me so long to do that math. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what is wrong with my brain. Like, it's okay. Um, you have quarantine brain, it's fine. I think that's what it is, you know. Like, this corona drives me crazy. All I do is go to work and come home. Let's get right into the autopsy. So the autopsy revealed that John Benet had been killed by strangulation and a skull fracture. The official cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation associated with associated with trauma. There was no evidence of conventional rape, although sexual assault could not be ruled out in the case. Although no semen was found, there was evidence that there had been um, a vaginal injury. At the time of the autopsy, the pathologist reported that it appeared her vaginal area had been wiped with a cloth. Her death was ruled a homicide. A garret that was made from a length of an nylon cord and the broken handle of a paintbrush was tied around John Benet's neck and had apparently been used to strangle her. Part of the bristle end of the paintbrush was found in a tub containing Patsy's art supplies, but the bottom third of it was never found despite extensive searching of the house by the police in the following days. The autopsy also revealed a vegetable or fruit material which may represent pineapple, which Jean Benet had eaten a few hours before her death. 
Photographs of the home taken on the day when John Benet's body was found showed a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table with a spoon in it. However, neither John nor Patsy said they remembered putting the bowl on the table or feeding pineapple to John Benet. Police reported that they found John Benet's nine-year-old brother, Burke Ramsey's fingerprints on the bowl. The Ramseys have always said that Burke slept through the entire night until he was awakened several hours after the police had arrived. John pointed out to the police first from the scene that the amount that was asked for in their ransom note was nearly identical to his Christmas bonus of the prior year, which suggested that someone who would have access to that information may be involved in the crime. Investigators looked at several theories behind the dollar amount demanded. They considered employees at Access Graphics who may have known the amount of John's prior bonus. They also considered the possibility that the ransom demand was a reference to Psalm 118 and spoke to religious sources to determine and they spoke to religious sources to determine possible relevance, which is interesting. I've never heard uh, of Psalm theory. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I looked at a lot of different websites because I feel like you know, when you're looking at cases like this, they all give you different details, obviously. So it's like I looked at a bunch of them, and that was on a couple of it. So I was like, okay, that's probably relevant. <laughs> that's interesting. It means I have a way that I could offer my sources to a police investigation in the future. That's pretty cool. Right, right. I can help you guys out. <laughs> this is what it says. Yeah, I know. It. I have a I have a Bible and theology degree. Let me help right. you. Right. <laughs> some dead bodies. Does anyone know what Psalms 118 is? The Lord said. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so one of the first steps for the investigators, obviously, was to obtain handwriting samples from John and Patsy, since the ransom note, obviously. John submitted a notebook that contained Patsy's household notes and a sample of his own handwriting. An examination of Patsy's notebook led to an interesting find. The killer had used her her pad and pen to execute the note. Mrs. Ramsey's notes were left intact at the front of the notepad, but seven pages in the middle were missing. The first page after the torn out section was the start of a note that read, Mr. and Mrs. The ransom note used three pages, and the remaining four practice pages were never found. Which is interesting. Like, who is going to come? Like, this is this is why, like, my theory is the way it is when I talk about it at the end. But just, like... Who is going to come into your house and write, like, a practice note? You know, like, unless they're purposely, like, trying to disguise their handwriting. You know what I'm saying? Unless, I don't know. You know what? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it is the most bizarre, one of the most bizarre things about this case to me. First of all, why the heck are your, is your ransom note, like, that long? I've never mm-hmm. heard of a ransom note being longer than, like, give me your money, meet your kid at this place, don't call the cops. You know, like. I, right. It's so weird to me the psychology behind whoever her killer is I just want to pick apart their brain exactly yeah I do too and it's it's so interesting because like we said it's three pages not only that but they use practice pages so who's going to practice it and then it's from her notepad and her pen which was in her room on her side table Hannah that is the craziest part about it so it's like Who's going to come in? So somebody either had to come in before that or come in while you were sleeping and you had no idea that they took that. You know, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's I don't, crazy. I have never read anything that says how, like, heavy of sleepers they were. 
if someone walked in my room, I dang well would know. Because when Emma walks in here in the middle of the night for whatever reason, like whether she's sleepwalking or whatever, my eyes just spring right open the second I hear my door open. Right. So that's the part that I don't understand. If my dog moves in her cage, like the other day I was sleeping and it was like 3 a.m. She moved in her cage and I sat straight up in my bed. I was like, what? (laughs) I do have a thought about it, though. What is that? Okay. When I was young... My parents used to sleep with the door cracked in case, like, we ever had a nightmare or whatever. Like, we could just go in there without really disturbing them too much and just, like, jumping in, jump into bed with them. Um, So, like, if my parents, like, someone totally could walk in and out. I mean, I do now. Like, sometimes I need something out of their bathroom, and I just, like, click the door open really quietly, and I just tiptoe on in and... It's like I was never there, but I mean, maybe it's just, it's just an idea because they had two young kids. Maybe they slept with the door cracked. I don't know. It's just a thought. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an interesting theory and that's, we keep going back to it. The craziest part about it. We don't know. So like it go both ways and it's, it's terrible. And that's why it's still a cold case. I know my mind just goes like so many directions when I hear anything about this case. I know, dude. And you know what? I'm actually obsessed with it. Like, it's one of my favorite cases. So it's like, I just go on like this spiral. I was on Reddit the other day for like an hour, just like reading like everything, articles, people like analyzing things, just spiraling down into a circle. And then finally, like I had to get off. I was like, I can't do this anymore tonight. Like I'm done for the night. I've read all I can do. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Sometimes I like almost start myself a little like Dang, I'm blinking. What's like it called when the police have all the pictures up on the wall and they like string it all together? Oh, oh I'm having a brain fart too. I know what you're talking about. I, you guys know what we're talking about on CSI and stuff when they do it. <laughs> yeah, but I definitely think about starting those sometimes. Like the Hulu documentary, I was just watching. I was just like scooping it up. Right. Like you want to cut newspaper clippings out and paste them on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> So, because the remaining four practice pages were never found, this leaves two possibilities like we talked about. The killer either removed the notebook and the pen from the home on a prior occasion and replaced it in the kitchen that night, or he wrote that note, or he wrote the note while in the home prior to or after the murder. The ransom note was unusually long, three pages like we mentioned. The FBI told the police that it was very unusual for such a note to be written at the crime scene. The police believed that the note was staged because it did not have any fingerprints except for Patsy's and the authorities who handled it, and because it included an unusual use of exclamation marks. The note and a practice draft were written with a pen and paper on the pad from the Ramsey home. According to a Colorado Bureau of Investigation report, there are indications that the author of the ransom note is Patricia Ramsey. However, the evidence fell short of a definite conclusion. Michael Baden, a board-certified forensic pathologist who had consulted with both sides of the case, said he had never seen a note like this in his 60 years' experience that he had, and he did not think that it was written by an outside stranger. There are two types of theories about the death of John Binet. One is the family member theory. So according to Greg McCrary, a retired profiler with the FBI, statistically, it is a 12 to 1 prob- 
probability that it's a family member or a caregiver who was involved in the homicide of a child. The police did not see any evidence of forced entry, but they did see evidence of staging of the scene, such as the ransom note. They did not find the Ramseys cooperative in in helping them solve the death of their daughter. The Ramseys had said that their reluctance was due to the fear that there would not be a full investigation for intruders and that they would be hastily selected as the key suspects in the case. One theory is that Patsy struck John Bonet in a fit of rage after a bedwetting episode and strangled her to cover up what had happened after mistakenly thinking that she was already dead. But Patsy did not have a known history of uncontrolled anger. JonBenet's brother later said, we didn't get spanked, nothing of the sort, nothing close, nothing near laying a finger on us, let alone killing your child. A detective on the scene claimed to have overheard John Ramsey making arrangements to fly the family to Atlanta just hours after the murder. John later did admit to this, saying that they had been asked to leave the house and they just wanted to go home to Atlanta, where they had lived for over 25 years. A new window of sexual abuse began to circulate, though no evidence was ever found to prove these allegations. There is no history, John Ramsey had said in a statement. A person doesn't go through their lives as a normal human being one night, turn into a monster, slaughter their daughter, go to bed, get up, and act normal from there on. That just doesn't happen. Same forensic and... I know, like, and, and that's the thing. It's hard to know because there's so many cases, obviously, if you guys are listening to this, that we've all heard where that has happened multiple times, and not just to one child, your whole family or your wife or your parents, you know? So it's uh... Specifically, family annihilators are known to just kill their families and then go on to never do it. And like another single bad thing in their whole life. But, I mean, this is clearly not the same situation, but people do, like, I mean, your first murder is your first murder, like. Right. I'm and not I saying think, I think her dad did it either because I don't think he did, but we'll get into that later. Right. And I think that the theory of sexual abuse is just interesting because most people that are sexually abusing someone, seven times out of ten, something tragic happens to them, like we discussed in the human trafficking case last week, you know. So, not saying that her dad was sexually abusing her, but that if that was the case, that's definitely an interesting theory. Yeah. So, famed forensic investigator Werner Spitz's review of John Benet's autopsy included a perfectly rectangular defect that he had suspected came from a blow to the little girl's head with a blunt, heavy flashlight seen in the photo that was on the kitchen counter in the crime scene photos. He claimed that the flashlight fit the eight-and-a-half-inch gash in her skull to perfection. However, no trace of either Jean Bonnet nor Burke's fingerprints were found on the flashlight. The flashlight became even more suspicious when it was tied to the pineapple scenario, a theory that suggested Jean Bonnet had taken a slice of fruit from Burke's late-night snack found at the dining room table. An undigested piece of pineapple, like she said, was found in her stomach during the autopsy which would have led him to strike her with the nearby flashlight out of anger. Lastly, the wounds on JonBenet's back, which were previously assumed to have come with, from an encounter with a stun gun, which is weird, were consistent with the edges of one of Burke's toy train tracks, which Spitz suggested may have 
been used by Burke to poke his sister's unconscious body for a response. Which is interesting. And you know what? Like I I read a bunch of stuff and I don't I don't remember if I took any notes on it. Um if I did, cool, but if I didn't. But I read a lot of stuff. I read that Burke was awful to her, honestly. And that's why I think that this is so interesting with the Burke theory, which is we'll discuss it, but my favorite theory, because he would like torture her like he would like poop in his sister's room I don't know if you've ever seen stuff like this he one year like smacked her in the head with a baseball bat like the year before this happened um and then John Binet would be so scared to get out like go out of her room like at night or like whenever because of Burke that she was like poop in her own bed basically because she was scared of him so it's a definitely oh inter- yeah so it's definitely interesting when you think about that and I'll post some information guys on our Instagram with some articles that talk more in depth about that but that is why I think the Burke theory is my favorite and especially if you've seen interviews with him now like he's just strange like and that's the best way to put it you'll have to go on YouTube and look up the interview of him on Dr. Phil but it's just very strange it's very off-putting it's just not really I feel like normal behavior, um, not to say anything bad, but that's just how I feel watching it. I get a very eerie feeling, especially knowing that he wasn't very good to his sister. Hmm. Yeah, I think definitely if you're going with the family theory, I think Burke is definitely the most compelling. Like, um, if you've ever seen the casting of John Bonet, I think is something, I think that's the name of it, but like basically it's, casting John Binet as if they're like casting these reenactments and it's interviewing different actors about what they think happened. And the Burt series, I mean, it definitely holds some water. It's not my favorite, but it's definitely one that I don't just look at and say, okay, that's absolutely crazy. I look at it and I'm like, hmm, there might be something there. Right, and I totally agree. Like, the series about Patsy and John, like, okay, I get where people, that's kind of a reach, you know what I'm saying? Like, the most sense that would, the most sense in the case that would make to me is that if they had any part of it, it was just protecting their son. And that's what I think makes the most sense in my perspective. And like I said, we all have different perspectives. I'm excited for you guys to hear what Hannah thinks as well. But that's what makes the most sense in my world is that he accidentally did something like a bunch of people even were interviewed like neighbors and stuff. And they just said, even as a kid, he had weird behavior. Like he had bipolar behavior. He had like random fits of like anger. So it's just definitely an interesting theory for sure. Okay, so in 1999, a Colorado um, grand jury voted to indict the parents. The indictment cited recklessly and felonously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation that posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Benet Ramsey, a child under the age of 16. On October 13, 1999, Alex Hunter, who was the district attorney at the time, refused to sign the indictment saying that the evidence was in at saying that the evidence was insufficient for prosecution. The public thought that the grand jury investigation had been inconclusive. In two thousand two, the statute of limitations on the grand jury's charges expired. Another theory in the John Bonnet case is the intruder theory. There was a but 
there was a boot print that was found next to John Bonet's body, which did not happen to belong to anyone in the family. There was also a broken window in the basement, which was believed at the time to be most likely a point of entry for an intruder. Additionally, there was DNA from drops of blood from an own, unknown male found on John Bonet's underwear. The floors in the Ramsey's house were heavily carpeted, making it plausible for an intruder to have carried John Bonet's body downstairs without waking the family. And well, we'll stop there. I'll keep going because I actually wrote that down. Early suspects in the case included neighbor Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus in their town, former family housekeeper Linda Hoffman Pugh, and a, my, and a man named Michael Helgoth. Is that how you say it, Helgoth? <laughs> yep, that's how you say his name. Okay, I'm just making sure it's not like Helgoth or something like that. Everyone's like, this idiot, she says it's her favorite case, and she doesn't know how to say it. <laughs> and a man named Michael Helgoth, who died in an apparent suicide shortly after John Bonet's death. Hundreds of DNA tests were performed to find a match to the DNA recovered during her autopsy, and none ever matched. This has been criticized, the intruder theory, because there was an intact cobweb in the basement windows. The steel grate that covered the window also had undisturbed cobwebs, and the foliage around the grate had also been undisturbed. There were also cobwebs in the tracks of various windows, and dust and debris were on some sills. The district attorney's office investigating pedophiles indicated to former Denver prosecutor Craig Silverman that the district attorney's office followed the intruder theory. Silverman said, and this is interesting, this is what I found on the case that I thought was super interesting. Silverman did say, once you have conceded the possibility of an intruder, I just don't see how any Ramsey could ever be successfully prosecuted. Gordon Coombs joined the office as an investigator under Lacey when they were testing John Bonet's clothing for touch DNA. He also said that Lacey strongly supported the intruder theory and talked about it with the staff. Although he was not directly involved with the case, he said he was told not to voice opposition to the theory because he might lose his job. It just seemed weird, the whole premise of this attempt to influence the entire agency, he stated. John Mark Carr. Actually, let's stop there for a second. What do you think about that, Hannah, that they were trying to basically influence this police department to go with one specific theory and not argue with it? I think it's weird. I think it lends itself to the idea that there's some sort of, like, organized, ooh, excuse me, organized crime going on that was kind of covered up. But I just, I think it's weird I, I don't really know what to make of it, though. I just, I think it's inappropriate, for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's just weird because, you know, we talk about sometimes, like, people that are super successful and have a lot of money having power, you know? And mm-hmm. you guys, John Bonet's family was stacked, honestly, for 1996 times. Like, they were stacked. You can look up a picture of their house. Um, which is actually only about 26 minutes for me, which is super interesting. I'm going to have to drive by it, like, tomorrow. Um, (laughs) Right, I'll FaceTime you and say, here we are. Um, But, you guys, you can look at their house, and it is 
crazy. Like, it's been renovated now, obviously, because we're in a different time and how things is different style-wise. But it it is crazy big. Like, it is a mansion, basically. And so he definitely had money. So it's just interesting to think about it in the aspect of if it was somebody in the family and they were covering this up for Bert and he had money and that power and position to basically be like, Hey, police department, you know, like not saying that's what happened, but it's just interesting because we know that's happened before. So, <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. No one's, no one rich has ever covered up for their child's indiscretion. Right. No one ever. That's unheard of. Do you hear the people howling? Huh? Okay, so every night at 8 o'clock on the die, I was posting this on my Snapchat, but I was talking about how, like, people just randomly started howling out the windows, like, at 8 o'clock on the dot every night, and it was just more and more people, bro. It was so weird, and I was like, okay, is this some kind of cult? Like, should I lean out the window and howl back? Like, what are they doing? I don't Are they on drugs? Like, I really don't know what's going on. And so, is it I just, howling, or is it, like, yeah, clanking? No, like, howling, like, Okay, that's weird. I was like, maybe they're doing that thank you hour thing. For, yeah, let me like, see. Let me see if I can get it, bro. Let me see. <laughs> can you hear it? Yes. Okay, yeah. So they do that every night at, eight, like, 8 o'clock on the dot. And so I've been so confused because I'm like, what the heck are they doing? And then they're um, not filming a Teen Wolf reboot, bro. I don't know what they're doing, but I don't go outside <laughs> because there's a lot of like not a lot of crime around here, but there's a lot of people that just like you can tell they're they're not sadly they're not really in their right mind, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't go outside because I'm like I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're doing like <laughs> a riot or like a, a cult meeting. I don't know. And then my if you roommate. See, called, if you see Tyler. Posey or Dylan O'Brien walking around outside, I can tell you what's going on. Right. If I see Dylan O'Brien, I'm jumping out my window is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> or or, oh my or Derek. I don't know who plays Derek, but if I see Derek, I'm diving out my window. I don't remember how to say his name, but man, we used to be obsessed with that show. It was good. <laughs> I know. That was a good show. <laughs> I miss it. Right. My roommate told me about this app that was, like, the neighborhood, like, basically, like, a neighborhood watch app. You just post on there, like, things that are going on in the neighborhood about anything. And so I mm-hmm. got on, I, I downloaded it, and I got on there. And basically at 8 o'clock every night, they're howling for healthcare workers that are working during the pandemic, which is awesome, but I just don't oh, know why okay. they, I just don't know why they picked howling. Like, why can't we just, like, clap or go, like, yeah, like, yeah, go healthcare workers. Like, I don't freaking know, yeah. but um, – it's hilarious when I was taking my dog out the other night and this guy that lives in the building next to me took his whole karaoke machine and put it up against the window and had a microphone. It was howling into his microphone and I lost it. <laughs> my God, I was like, what? That's so funny. It was hilarious. I was like, oh, I love it here. <laughs> Crackheads on every corner. Right. I'm like, I said <laughs> Maybe it's not crack, but something is making you that crazy. Right. See, mine's not crack. Mine's just coffee and caffeine, but um, it gives me the same effect that crack gives you guys. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, gosh. 
sorry to get off track, guys. We'll jump for a second. When I'm almost done, I'm just going to tell you guys kind of the end of what happened um, after the murder. And then Hannah will be able to jump into hers. So John Mark Carr, who was a 41-year-old elementary school teacher, was arrested in Thailand on August 15, 2006, when he falsely confessed to murdering John Benet. He claimed that he had drugged, sexually assaulted, and accidentally killed her. According to CNN, authorities also say that they did not find any evidence linking Carr to the crime scene. In his confession, Carr had only provided basic facts that were publicly known and failed to provide any convincing details. His claim that he had drugged John Bonet was doubted because the autopsy indicated that no drugs were found in her body. DNA samples were taken DNA samples that were taken from Carr did not match DNA samples found on John Bonet's body. And then I listened here because I was doing some research on this, and basically I was just like copy and pasting and like changing some words up because I was like, I don't want to sound like a robot when I'm reading this. But um, I wrote down the Ramseys, John and Patsy were suing like a MFR bro. They were suing so many people, and you guys can look up, like, a list of everybody they sued and actually how much they sued them for. But, like, media companies, like, anybody talking about the case, like, slandering anybody's name, they were suing them, like, a crazy amount of people. Like, and not even just media reports, but you guys will definitely have to look that up. So I said, Ramsey's was suing, like, an MFR. I'm not even about to read everybody they sued. <laughs> for real. And then... In 2016, September, during an interview with CBS Detroit and in the case of John Benet Ramsey, the documentary television program, forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz accused Burke Ramsey of killing his sister. On October 6, 2016, Burke filed a lawsuit against Spitz. Burke and his attorneys, including Lynn Wood, who is the same attorney that helped John and Patsy sue all those people, so you know that attorney made a fuck off of that, bro. <laughs> but um, she probably bought herself her own mansion off of them. Seven of them, crap. Like a jet, seven mansions, whatever she wanted. Like, because they were, and it wasn't like a small amount. It wasn't like $10,000. Like, oh, no. So when Burke and Linwood um, sued Werner Spitz, they sued him for $150 million in damages. And Wood, the attorney, said that they would also file a suit against CBS at the end of October of 2016. Then in December of 2016, December 28th, Burke Ramsey's lawyers filed an additional civil lawsuit that accused CBS, the production company, critical content, and seven experts and consultants of defamation of character. So altogether for that lawsuit, they filed $750 million worth of damages against CBS. Sure. Yeah, $750 million. That is crazy. I can't even, I can't even picture that. In January, I can't even think about spending. I, I know. I'm like, I get like, a stimulus check, and I'm like, oh, man, I am loaded, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, whoa, we are balling out for at least another month. (laughs) 
Um, and then the last thing that I'm going to say about the case is that in January 2018, a judge denied the CBS motion to dismiss the lawsuit, and it was allowed to proceed. In January 2019, just last year, Woods announced that the lawsuit had been settled to the satisfaction of all parties. So Burke got paid. Yeah. That's crazy, bro. Yeah, well, you guys already heard what I thought. I think my favorite theory is the Burke theory. I I don't know. Like, I know he was only nine years old at the time, but I just feel like the strength. I know you, we would think realistically that a nine-year-old wouldn't have a lot of strength, and it's true. It's true compared to, like, you know, a 20-year-old. But some little kids are strong, man. So I don't know. If he threw a flashlight and it was already heavy and it hit her in the head, and then, like, I saw a theory that maybe the cord was around her neck because he was trying to, like, pull her body to, like, the parents' room, you know, to, like, say, hey, like, help. And it, like, accidentally strangled her. I don't know. And then when they were trying to cover it up, that maybe Patsy used that paintbrush. Patsy or John used the paintbrush hand, like, the paintbrush handle to, like, make her look like she had been, like, sexually touched because, they wanted to make it look like an intruder theory. I don't know. We could talk about this all day. You guys know my theory. And Hannah thinks actually the Michael guy did it. So, Hannah, do you want to just talk about that for a minute? And then we can hop on to Casey Anthony. Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay. I believe Michael Helgoth did it. Tell but us about it. <laughs> I think it, would be, it would be hard to prove because the man is dead. He right. – um, I believe it was like a week or two after she died. Um, he was found dead with like a stun gun in his hand, which I don't know the significance of the stun gun in his hand thing. But listen, okay, so there were boot prints found in the house, like a like a utility boot, like a like it's a tech boot is what they kept calling it. But basically, uh-huh. it's just like a work like a work boot print, and everyone who worked at the scrapyard with him thought that his print, his shoe prints looked like, you know, like a tech boot print and gave it to authorities, like a a copy of his um, boot print. But authorities were like, Oh no, like that's not even, that doesn't even look like the right size. We're not going to investigate that. Um, Yeah. What, why wouldn't you investigate it? Like just because you're eyeballing it here doesn't mean it, it might not be at that. Okay. But it's weirder. Because several witnesses claim that he stated, I wonder what it feels like to crack a human skull. Oh, what the heck? I've never heard that. And his favorite flashlight went missing around the time that John Binet died, and it was never found. Like missing from his home? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. The tea. Well, not from his home, his flashlight he always had with him. Like he I mean, he worked in a scrapyard. He had like tools and stuff. Like he's a like a working guy. So he had this flashlight with him at work, at home, everywhere. And it was missing. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And it like I mean, I think it's definitely fishy that he killed himself like right after the death too, you know. So that's a definitely different perspective. I just I find him very, very sketchy. Was he married at the time or anything like that? Did he have kids or was he just like a single guy that was like weird? I've never heard anything about if he had a family. Uh, but 
I mean, it just says he was discovered, so it could have been discovered by his family. I don't know, but I know that it just seems weird that he says, what would it be like to crap, crack a human skull? He has the tech boot print, and his flashlight went missing. I just... Yeah, like, it all adds up. Those are the three things. Yeah, I feel you. That definitely makes sense. Like, no normal person says, I want to crack a human skull. Like, what? Yeah, and I was actually just reviewing my notes, and it said the flashlight, we don't know for a fact that it was his, but the Ramseys found a flashlight they didn't recognize in their home on the day that she was killed. Yeah, definitely weird. Interesting perspective. When his went missing. Right. And he also said, okay, I totally forgot about this. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. So one of his coworkers recalled that in late November, so she was killed um, in December, he made a comment to his coworker that said, and he said, me and a partner are going to make 50 to 60 K each. And he called this a killer deal. And he was really vague about what the heck was the, what the job was. But the, um, like the combined amount for each of them make 50 to 60 K roughly combined is the amount mentioned in the ransom notes. Yeah, that's crazy. It definitely is. It's multiplied by like two or three. That's crazy. Because sixty k each is one twenty. They asked for one eighteen. Right. So they just took it down a little bit, and maybe they found out some <laughs> information about his bonus. Yeah. There's just there's a lot looking like he's suspicious. I mean, there's so many so many suspects that look so good in this case, but Michael Helgoss is my favorite suspect. Your favorite. I love that. Well, I'm glad that we're, like, both able to have different perspectives and put them out there. And you guys, go look it up because it's definitely an interesting case. You're definitely going to spend a lot of time just digging and digging, trying to figure out what happened to so fishy. Go watch, yeah. the, go watch the Burke and Dr. Phil interview. Let me know what you guys think about Burke. Let me know what you think about the note. And you guys can look up some notes where they compare patties and the ransom note right next to each other. So, yeah. That's- I, I, I just, I have a hard time thinking it was anyone in the family, but that could also just be, like, wishful thinking. I don't know. I don't know what to think of it. But my favorite is definitely Michael Helgoff. <laughs> yeah. And, see, you're with the wishful thinking, and that makes perfect sense. You would just want to assume, like, no, these are just human parents. Well, I'm the worst. Like, I assume the worst out of everybody, so I'm like, uh-uh, missing little girl. Yeah. And definitely did it. Like, <laughs> that's normally how I am, and I don't know if it's just because, like, I've grown up hearing this case, and, like, you know, I mean, it happened, like, two months before you and I were born. Right. But I just, I don't know. In other cases, like the one I'm about to jump into, I'm like, yep, your parents did it. That little girl's missing 100%. Look at her mama. Look at her dad. They're guilty. But with John Bonet, I'm just like, who the heck killed this poor little baby? Okay, guys, today is a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy and 
expensive and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout, the platform that Hannah and I use for our podcast, is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Within minutes of finishing your recording, you can upload your podcast directly to all these websites and apps instantly. Podcasting is not hard when you have the right partner, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Let's create something great together. And, guys, if you sign up for Buzzsprout, you're going to get a $20 Amazon gift card. That link will be in the bio. They have lots of different payment plans for you guys to do on Buzzsprout, starting as low as about $12 a month. So join Buzzsprout today. You guys definitely go check it out. Click the link in the description if you or anybody you know has a podcast that you're currently doing and you want to switch platforms or if you've been itching to start a podcast and looking for the right platform, I definitely recommend it. It's super easy to upload. Um, Write down your title and description and get started. Right. I completely agree. Same with Kaylee Anthony. Who killed Kaylee Anthony, Hannah? Why don't you go ahead, jump right on into it, and tell us about Crazy Casey. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to jump right in here, okay? Let's go. So Kaylee Marie Anthony was born August 9th, 2005, in Orlando, Florida, which, if you don't know, is the home of the most magical place in the world and also... One of the biggest monsters. Anyway. That's where dreams come true. That's my opinion. Please don't sue me, Casey Anthony. Um, But, anyway. On July 15th, 2008, Kaylee Anthony was reported missing by her grandmother, Cindy. And Cindy said, in her report, that she had not seen her grandchild in 31 days. Woo. Which to me seems really weird because from everything I've read about this family, they were very, very close. And I mean, Kaylee had, I mean, it's not abnormal for kids to have like their own room at their grandparents' house. Like, I totally get it. I 100% had a room at me on Papa's house growing up. It's the thing. Right. You do. Um, yeah. 100%. I'm pretty sure you probably still have a room there. Um, <laughs> it's still pink. <laughs> I love it. Um, but, yeah, 31 days is a crazy long time to me. Whatever. Yeah, 31 so, days. If I don't know where my kid is for 30 minutes, I'm freaking out. <laughs> so she's reporting missing. So immediately after hearing... This kid's been missing for 31 days. The police jump into action, which Mm. this is one of very few cases where, like, police just jump right in. Because usually with missing persons cases, you hear a lot of, like, oh, well, let's just give it 24 hours, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's really sad, you know, of course, when when you hear that. But also, I mean, I know the police have their reasons for doing those things. But in this situation, they just jumped in. Um, So 
when the police got involved, immediately, immediately, Casey Anthony looked like the number one suspect because her kid's missing and homegirl is out partying and drinking and just living it up, having a great time. Mm-hmm. And she also got a tattoo of, it says, a beautiful life, like right after her daughter went missing. Mm-hmm. Which to me, like, what? Yeah, that's crazy. And then there are pictures of her, like, dancing in the club, wearing, like, a white T-shirt, and that tattoo is, like, poking out, and she just looks so happy and, like, carefree. Yeah, it definitely looks like someone's life just got a little bit easier. Wink, right. wink. No two-year-old. Yeah. So, not only that, okay, if you if you don't think that behavior is bizarre enough, let's hop on the train of the lies of Casey Anthony. So, let's start with just one because you could throw a dart spinning in a circle and you could hit one of her lies. Literally, I feel like this is like the never-ending train. <laughs> I mean, one of the prosecutors literally said, this woman in the, in the closing argument said, she will uphold the lie until it is impossible for her to profess it any longer. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she's just, she's just a compulsive liar. Um, but anyway, okay. So at first the, Casey's mom, Cindy, told police that Casey explained so many different places that Kaylee was. So Cindy saw Casey without Kaylee in this 31-day period. So Casey would say, like, you know, she's with the friend. She's with Zanny the Nanny, which we'll get mm. into in a minute. You know, all these different things. The friend's house with the nanny, with the blah, 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 blah. And so... I mean, she just, she lied to her mom about where her daughter was for all these weeks, like a month. Um, so just to, hold, just, to, just to verify, sorry to cut you off, Casey lived with her parents at this time, right? I believe so. Okay, but it's also fishy. Like, I can't pin it down. It seems like she lived with her parents, but she also spent quite a bit of time at her boyfriend's house or at friends' houses. Because it seems like she kind of slitted in and out of the house. Right. And where, yeah, definitely. And where was Kaylee's dad at at the time? Does it say anything about that? I don't remember. I don't have a ton of information. I'm assuming he's the same situation as Cindy. Like, you know, Casey's lying to him, too. Um, yeah, what the heck? As, as far as this timeline, there's not a ton of information about, like, what her dad was up to at the time. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I was just asking. Now, that's a good question. It's a legitimate one, and we'll get into that. Um, so she lies about where her kid is, and she lies to friends and family forever. I mean, Casey, or excuse me, Kaylee isn't even three years old here, but for her, pretty much most of her life had been telling friends that she had this nanny named Zanny the Nanny, and her name was supposedly Zeneda Fernandez Gonzalez. And I'm not sure if I pronounced that first name correctly, but either way, it doesn't matter because it's not a real person. Because when Casey was originally questioned, she told the police 
get this. She told the police that her nanny kidnapped her child on the day that she went missing, but Casey never reported that. Um, this is my whole problem. I'm a nanny, and I would never in a million years, like, you you would be one of the first people that they would come to. Like, first of all, why would you even do that? Like, that's psychotic. That's somebody else's child. But number two, like, the people they investigate first are always the people closest to you. So I know if something happened at any day at my job, they would be coming to my door first. You spend every day with them. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, why? She would never even if she was a real person. Yeah. I'm and sticking up for Danny. <laughs> There's no need. It's like sticking up for the Easter bunny. Like, I mean, it, it's just baffling to me. And if I was a cop and I was investigating her and I was interviewing her in this moment and she looks at me and says, yeah, my nanny kidnapped my daughter 31 days ago. I'd be like, I'm sorry, why didn't you come to us? Right. Did what? you want her to kidnap her? <laughs> like, I would immediately know that that was just crap. Right. Because, I mean, I watched One Tree Hill. I watched the episode where the nanny took sweet little Jamie and... <laughs> you said, I've watched One Tree Hill or that Lifetime movie. <laughs> Did you ever see that Lifetime movie, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle? Oh, my gosh. That is one of my favorite Lifetime movies ever made. Me too. I used to have it on VHS. That movie was crazy. Yeah. Nannies are crazy. If if my nanny runs off with my baby, first of all, actually, if my baby runs off at all, I would call the cops. But yeah, okay, so that was that was the first lie that she told to investigators. They, she'd been telling this lie for a long time. And to me, I'm sorry, if I was her boyfriend or her parents and I'd never met the nanny, I would think that's so odd. Because my mom was a nanny for kids at the church like a bunch of different times I don't know how many times that kid was picked up by another member of the family and right. like I, I just can't foresee a world where like Casey was able to pick up her daughter from the nanny every single time like no right 100% the people I nanny for right now their moms text me like one of the dads his mom texts me and like once a week she'll just text me and check in on the kids and stuff like but that's you meet them you know what I'm saying like you obviously see them like they're not just going to be like always gone (laughs) yeah exactly like I mean like you you're late getting off work for whatever reason you call your friend and you're like hey you know can you go pick up my kid from the nanny because the nanny has a life too you know like you should meet your girlfriend or your daughter's nanny. Like, right. I just think that's, I think that's crazy. But also, I mean, I'm not blaming the friends and family for not knowing her because, you know, there are situations and circumstances that would prevent that. I just find it very strange. Um, so another lie that Casey told, which, you know, just continue on. That will yeah, just keep going. Next 14 hours of this case. Yeah, you guys um, keep tally marks on how many lives we're on. Yeah. I think this is, what, like 400,000? That's an exaggeration. Right. <laughs> um, Casey told police that she was working at Universal Studios, um, which is also in Orlando. But she takes police there 
and like walks around all over the offices forever and ever, taking them to her office, and then eventually says, "Just kidding, I got fired from here a while ago." What? Yeah, actually, I can't remember if she got fired or if she quit. I'm pretty sure she got fired, but I I'm not gonna say that for a fact. But either way, she wasn't working at Universal Studios anymore for like a while. She it had been like lying. two years, right? Something like that. But she had been lying to her parents about it also. So it's not just a lie that she told. Again, it's not just a lie she told police. It's a lie she told other people in her life. So her family thought that she was working at Universal the entire time, like going there every day. Yes. Oh, my goodness. My question is, how the heck was she making money? I think we know. <laughs> I literally have no idea. Um, I, because if I was out of work for two years, your girl would be, I would be very, 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 very bad off and probably crying every single day. If I was out of work for two weeks, I would lose it. Amen. That's the truth. Um, okay. So she, you know, lying, lying, lying her butt off. Her boyfriend also comes forward and makes a comment that Casey has made comments before about giving Kaylee Xanax. What? Which, if you notice, a nickname for Xanax is Zanny. A hundred percent. And her nanny's name was Zanny? The nanny? We see what you did, Katie. We see what you did. The theory that follows, if you can't catch my drift, is that Casey would give Kaylee a Xanax and put her to bed or put her in a closet or wherever else and go live her life. Now, those claims have not been substantiated, but it's a claim that was made. I think it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, did. I I need to continue on. Okay, there's so much to this. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, you're getting like a super long episode here, guys. Yeah, you guys but... are welcome for your isolation. <laughs> uh, okay, so on July 16, 2008, which is the day after, um, her mom reported Casey missing, or I'm sorry, reported Kaylee missing. Casey was arrested. And she was originally denied bail for, quote, willful disregard of the welfare of her child just because she hadn't reported her daughter missing for a month. Right. And I she mean, obviously wasn't being cooperative with the police. To me, that alone is like neglect case right there. Like, right. You're charged. But, whatever. So, on July 22nd, there was a bond hearing, and bail was set at $500,000. And after a month, she was released on bail, hosted by a nephew of a bondsman, in hope she would cooperate and Kaylee could be found. Um, and then, somewhere along the way, she got, like, she was sent back to jail, and she was bailed out again by her parents with an ankle monitor on September 5th. 
Casey was offered a limited immunity deal. Um, I don't know the specific terms of this deal, but I know like basically a limited immunity typically means like it's a reduced sentence if you cooperate with police and give them um, information leading to finding her child. Right. But Casey, and it would expire. um, She was offered it on July 29th and it would expire August 25th. But then they offered it to her again that would expire on the 28th and she turned it down again. So she kept turning down these immunity deals and she was just clinging to the claim that she was innocent. Yeah. So this is all leading up to a sad day. Um, on December 11th, 2008, after some calls from a neighbor about some really suspicious looking objects in like his from the view of his backyard on December 11 2008 two-year-old Casey's skeletal remains were found with a blanket inside a trash bag in a wooded area near Cindy and George uh, George's Casey's father north Mm. near their home reports and trial testimony vary between where the duct tape was some some of them say that the duct tape was on the mouth of the skeleton, and some say it was near the front of the skeleton. Um, but mm-hmm. she was all, she's also found that the blanket that matched the bedding in her in the bedroom of her parents grandparents' home. Excuse me. <laughs> it's okay. You know what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, her body was found in a trash bag. And I think something really important to go back to right here, when when Cindy called the police to report her granddaughter missing, she also stated that Casey's car smells like a dead body. Oh, no. And that's a very specific smell. The smell of decomposition, I feel like, is really hard to, like, misdiagnose. I don't know what word that would be, like, misidentified. No, misdiagnosed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, So, I think that's, like, a huge thing, that she noticed that and pointed it out and felt the need to tell it to the police. Uh, But let's get into the trial a little bit, because it's a mess. So there were 400 pieces of evidence presented to the jury oh in this case. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. I don't, that's I mean, a lot. I don't know comparatively, but that seems like a lot of evidence to go through. Um, I'm going to go over some of the really, like, nail-in-the-coffin pieces of evidence to me is – there was a strand of hair from Casey's trunk with root bonding. Um, so root bonding is when when a person dies, like the hair that continues to grow, because your hair continues to grow if you die. I don't know if you knew that, but it does. The yeah. hair near the scalp, near the root, is darker when you die. And oh, so that's called root bonding. Yeah, it's, it's like a way they can identify hair found in crime scenes if it was left by a dead person or if it was left by an alive person. 
But based on hair matching, it matched Kaylee, which, I mean, I know hair matching science is kind of sketchy, but, you know, do that what you will. Yeah. So company, a company called Arpod or AirPod, I'm not sure, Bass and Oak Ridge National Laboratory judged that the air from Casey's trunk showed evidence of decomposition um, because it showed the presence of five key compounds of over 400 possible. So let me explain that one a little bit more. So they took like air samples from her trunk and of like the compounds found in the air, like the gases, I guess is the way to explain it. Yeah. That are released like when you're, when there's like a decomposing body, we're there. Oh out of like goodness. four, because there's like 400 possible elements that could be in the trunk of a vehicle. And there were five key components of decomposition. Does so that make something, sense? Yeah, something dead was definitely in there. Like something alive that was once dead, not like plant-based, but like human or animal-based, basically. Right. Something okay. dead and decomposing within that trunk. Ugh. Uh so there was also evidence of chloroform in her car. Mm. And that's significant because on October 2000, in October of 2009, um, and the trial began, the trial didn't start until May 24, 2011. So a while before the trial began, officials released 700 pages of Google searches from the Anthony family computer that Casey had access to uh-huh. with Google searches, including neck breaking and how to make chloroform. What? Yes. Neck breaking. Who searches that? Yeah. That's <laughs> sketchy to me too. Right. Yeah. So let's move on in the trend. Okay. So, one of the alternate theories, which, okay, I, I always think that defense attorneys are kind of slimy, but also they're, like, such a vital part of our judicial system that sometimes I've have, I feel like I have to stick up for them because their job is to create a reasonable doubt because if there wasn't defense attorneys, then it would be so easy to peg things on innocent people all the time. So it's putting the burden of proof on the prosecution. It's saying, okay, like if a crime was committed, you guys need to prove for a fact without any amount of doubt that this person did this. So essentially defense attorneys are there to make sure that the prosecution does their job to give justice to the victims. So, like, they are forcing the prosecution to do a solid job because otherwise they would do a hack job and you would look at other crazy countries where people go to jail all the time um, for things that they never did. Right. So what the defense attorney did here, while it is pretty sleazy, I'll admit, it's his job because you need to provide alternate theories for who could have done it because – if there's a viable alternate theory, like it needs to be considered by the jury because 
I mean, they need to see, okay, if the prosecution didn't fully convince me that Casey did it, I need to know, like, who else could have done it. So, the the defense attorney comes up with this theory with the approval of Casey that her father sexually abused Casey when she was a child. Mm, Gosh, that breaks my heart to hear that. Yes. Sexually abused Casey as a child, and then Kaylee accidentally died um, in the pool of their backyard, and George told Casey to cover it up because she would be um, immediately charged with neglect and abuse and all those things, and also just the threat of, like, sexual assault and, like, that power he had over her was what he did to help her hush up. Right. Which, oh, my gosh. I mean, if that is the truth, I feel sorry for every negative thing I've ever said about Casey, but I just don't think it's true. I don't Um, believe that for a second. Yeah, I think they would have pushed harder on that if there was actually any evidence to support that theory. But that was the thought, you know, George Anthony adamantly, you know, denied those claims from the stand. I mean, and he looked just heartbroken. Yeah. I mean, I can't exactly blame him. Um, but then uh, Cindy, I don't know why I keep wanting to call her Carol. Cindy took this <laughs> I don't stand. know, maybe because that's your grandma's name. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's because all these C names I get confused. Um, <laughs> but She also took the stand and said that, quote, smelled like death was a figure of speech. And I've read it a couple different ways, which is just weird to me, because what I've heard, and I'm I'm like 99% sure I actually heard it on the recording of the 911 call. She said, it smells like a dead body in there. But then in the stand, she says, yeah, it smells like death, which is a figure of speech. I've told Emma that her room smells like death before. Yeah. and it's definitely an exaggeration and a figure of speech. So to me, it just seems weird. And I get wanting to defend your child, but it just seems odd that she walked back on that after saying it so emotionally um, in that number one call. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so another piece of evidence in the case was that a police dog was used to search, of course, because, you know, they have much better noses than we do. Yeah. They, a, a cadaver dog found evidence of, or indicated that there was presence of, like, decomposing scent in the trunk. So, like, you know, just further evidence that something went down in the trunk. Something dead or dying was in the trunk. Yeah. Um. A professor from the University of Florida, go Gators, um, he made a video to show the jury, and it was it, it was allowed in court. Um, I actually don't know if it was allowed in court. I know the jury was allowed to see it, though. Um, to show how the death could have occurred, and he argued that the duct tape was there before the body began to, um, decomposing, just because of the positioning of it when it was found. Uh-huh. 
So that would kind of say that, like, it, the point of that, the importance of proving the thing about the duct tape, it's like if it was an accidental death, why would there be duct tape on her mouth? Right. That was purposely placed there. Yeah, and even even if it was placed there after she died, why? Right. Why so, would you put duct tape on your dead kid's mouth? Why? Yeah, I agree. I That is just baffling to me. I can't get past that. Why was there duct tape on her mouth, whether Casey did it or not? It was not an accidental death. I just, I can't, I can't agree with that. Yeah, whether it was placed there before or after she died, it just, proves that there was intent to put it there (laughs) yeah and cindy also in her defense of her daughter accepted responsibility for the chloroform searches and i don't know why like it it, i couldn't find anything if she explained why she would have searched for something like that but also her work logs showed that she was at work at the time that those searches occurred, so it couldn't have been her. But she says that at that time she was leaving work early, and it definitely could have been her. But I'm like, what the heck? Yeah, is- no. But why would you look that up on your computer? I don't know. I don't know. Why, <laughs> why, would, you, why would you look that up? <laughs> Whatever. I'm going to look it up right now. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so on June 25th, the defense asked for a recess because they wanted to, okay, like over a month into the trial, they wanted a recess to see if Casey was competent to stand trial. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, it was deemed that she was competent to stand trial. To me, it just seems like they were starting to grasp at straws. Yeah. But that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, my, our opinion. <laughs> But ultimately, um, she was found. She was found guilty on some charges and not guilty on others. Hold on, let me pull up my notes. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Take your time. They were saying a lot of the evidence was circumstantial, right? So like none of it could actually be tied to her. Yes. So many, so many, so many. Oh, but before I actually, before I get into like the that she was found guilty of a not. So let me talk about these closing arguments for a second. So her defense attorney said, told the prosecution that, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> her defense attorney told the jury that the prosecution wanted them to see stains in insects that did not really exist that they had not proven that the stains in Anthony's car trunk were caused by Kaylee's decomposing body rather than from a trash bag found in there. Okay, Which so what means, was dead in the trash bag, Casey? Yeah, to me it's spin, but whatever. He said that the drowning is the only explanation that makes sense and showed jurors a photograph of Kaylee opening the home sliding glass door by herself he stressed that there were no ch- no child safety locks in the home and that both of Casey's parents, George and Cindy, testified that Kaylee could get out of the house easily. Although Cindy testified that Kaylee could not put the ladder on the side of the pool to climb up, Baez, Baez I'm not sure how the hell's his name, um, the defense attorney, alleged that Cindy may have left the ladder up the night before. 
She didn't admit to doing so in testimony, he said, but how much guilt would she have knowing it was her that left the ladder up that day? Okay, listen. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thought. But the duct tape. Yeah, the, 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 I keep going back tape. to the duct tape. The duct tape. I mean, it doesn't seem like the prosecution made that a hill to die on, and I think they totally should have, but whatever. So I'm going to continue on with stuff he said in his closing argument. He's fully just... <laughs> so he told the jury that he his biggest fear was that they would base their verdict on emotions and not evidence. And he said, quote, the strategy behind that is if you hate her, you think if you think she's lying, a no good slut, then you'll start to look at this evidence in a different light. I told you at the very beginning of this case that this was an accident that snowballed out of control. What made it unique is not what happened, but who it happened to. And he explained that Casey Anthony's behavior is being the result of her dysfunctional family situation. Mm. Like, I mean, he's smart here playing the whole emotions card and saying that, like, you if you just assume she's a slut, but if it's an accidental death that snowballed out of control, why would she duct tape her kid's mouth? I just cannot. I can't. I can't get over it. Or not only that. The duct- yeah, the duct tape thing, but then like the 31 days thing. If it was accidental, like how are you in your sane mind as a mother going around for 30 days doing all this fun stuff, and you don't feel like the least bit convicted? or guilty or any of that for accidentally killing your daughter, if that's what actually took place, you wouldn't, like, have to open up to anybody about that. Like, if I did that, dude, I would be depressed, like, lock myself in my room. Like, you know, you wouldn't be out. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if it was an accident, I can see, like, going out and partying and trying to get your mind off of it. But you don't get a tattoo that says a beautiful life. Right. What? What is that? To me, that just looks like, hey, I'm partying it up since my kid's dead now. Right. I have a beautiful life, and I can do what I want now that my two-year-olds are out of the picture. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, like, you drink to forget. I get it. Like, she could have totally been partying if it was accidental, you know. But the tattoo just, what? Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. And I just, I just don't, the, the, the duct tape, the duct tape. And I know it's not like 100% proven that it was on her mouth, but why do you put duct tape on your kid's body anywhere if it was an accident? Right. Anywhere. Why would, you're trying to make it like, look like it's something it's not. Even if it wasn't on her mouth. Okay, I'm just going to put some duct tape on her shoulder. Why? Right. Why? And they found that duct them. tape roll in their actual garage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to move on. So the prosecution came back with some kind of interesting stuff, not super compelling stuff here, guys. Like, come on, Orlando prosecutors, get it. (laughs) Um, Oh, it's also important to note, too, that just because of the exposure of this case, because I'm pretty sure it was a nationwide case uh, when it was going down, but they moved. Because it started out local, of course, because that's how most things do. 
the case wasn't in Orlando. It was like in a nearby town. So it wasn't held in Orlando. But let me move on with the prosecution. So she began by backing up every claim they made in their opening statement six weeks ago and implied that the defense never backed up their own opening claims, which if you if you go back and read trial testimony or watch the trial, whatever, you can see the defense really doesn't do that. So this was one of the more compelling points that she made here. But she said, my biggest fear is that common sense will be lost in all the rhetoric of the case. Insisting, um, she said, insisting that she would never ask the jury to make their own decision based on emotion, but rather evidence. So basically, she was just trying to undo the spin that the defense attorney just did. Yeah. But she said, responses to guilt are oh so predictable. What do guilty people do? They lie, they avoid, they run, they mislead, they divert attention away from themselves, and they act like nothing is wrong. Mm, It's true. Preach, woman. Preach. It's apt. It's an an astute observation. Right. For sure. Um. So she suggested that the uh, garbage bag in the trunk was a decoy because, you know, when prosecution went, or not prosecution, when investigators went to the scene, they found a trash bag in the trunk, but like probably could have been placed there to cover up the decomposition smell. Totally get, totally 100% can believe that's true. Yeah, 100%. Um, But then she continued on to ask whose life was better without Kaylee? She stressed how George and Cindy were wondering where their daughter and granddaughter were in June and July 2008, the same time Casey was at her boyfriend's apartment while Kaylee's body was decomposing in the woods. Mm -hmm. She said, the only question you need to answer in considering why Kaylee Marie Anthony was left on the side of the road dead. I'm sorry, that's the only reason you need to answer. Um, Yeah, because her tattoo, she then displayed a picture of Casey. Uh, partying with her tattoo, Bella Vita, which is the actual tattoo. It was Bella Vita, not um, Beautiful Life, but it means Beautiful Life tattoo that she got weeks after Kaylee died. Mm. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. Like, I just, it's hard for me to even, like, have a statement on it to wrap my mind around that a mother could, one, do this to a child, to lie her way out of it. And, like, I mean, we all know what happened, but the truth of the matter is, is we all know how it is. Well, maybe not you guys listening, but Tammy's going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, they, so they, the jury was left after closing statements were made. Um, they were deliberating beginning on July 4th and on July 5th. They asked for more information, whatever, but later on July 5th, they found Casey not guilty on counts one through three, Mm. which, listen, okay, they found her not guilty on cases regarding first-degree murder, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and aggravated child abuse. Mm. I don't know how she got off on the child abuse. Yeah, I really don't know. But they found her guilty on counts four through seven for providing false information to law enforcement. Okay. Which is like the lightest sentences in there. Yeah. Like she didn't even serve a whole year, right? 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to read the, the specifics of counts four through seven for you. Okay. So count four, Anthony said she was employed at Universal Studios during 2008. Um, count five, Anthony said that she left Kaylee at an apartment complex with a babysitter, causing law enforcement to pursue the missing babysitter. Mm-hmm. Count six, Anthony said she informed two employees of Universal Studios um, of the dis- disappearance of Kaylee, which is not true. Count yeah. seven, Anthony said she had received a phone call and spoke to Kaylee on July 15, 2008, causing law enforcement to extend further resources. Is that not crazy? She even lied and said she had been on the phone with her kid. I just, it's like when stuff like that happens, it's like, how do you not get found guilty? Like, your daughter's been missing. They're running in all these directions. And she told us, like, she talked to her daughter after she's been missing for so long. It's like, no, you never did. Like, especially, like, I don't know. When they did, like, the autopsy, were they able to tell how long Kaylee had been dead for? Uh, oh, I'm sure it's out there, but I did not find it and put it in my notes. Yeah, I'm just wondering because, like, if they knew how long she was dead for and then if they, like, went back and said, okay, like, September 7th, she told us she talked to Kaylee, but Kaylee's been dead in the time frame of September 2nd to September 3rd. I don't know. I know, like, that's all circumstantial as well, obviously, but it's mm-hmm. still, like, you lion ho. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to get more angry? Yeah, let's hear it. I'm already mad. My blood's already boiling. Okay, so let's get on to sen- sentencing then, and y'all just have to walk out. <laughs> Everybody sit down. So Judge Perry, who presided over the case, sentenced Casey to one year in county jail, not even prison, and $1,000 in fines for each of the four counts of providing false information to law enforcement uh, to a law enforcement officer, the maximum penalty prescribed by law. So what, like $4,000? Yeah, a year in county jail and 4000 bucks. Wow, I want to scream at Florida. <laughs> Listen, she received a 1,043-day credit for time served. Plus an additional credit for good behavior, resulting in her release on July 17th, 2011. How long was that? She spent exactly 12 days in jail after her trial was over. Wow, I'm internally screaming on the inside. (laughs) You like let me let me make you more mad real quick. So oh, she released July seventeenth. On July fifteenth, she filed a notice of appeal. So she was gonna try to appeal this teeny tiny punishment. Her twelve days. Yeah. But in September of twenty eleven, um complying with a Florida statute requiring judges to assess investigative and persecution costs if requested by a state agency. They ruled that Casey Anthony must pay $217,000 to the state of Florida. He ruled that she had to pay those credits 
or the, those costs directly related to lying to law enforcement about the death of Kaylee, including search costs only up to September 30th, 2008, when the sheriff's office stopped investigating her missing child case. Yeah, and then it's, of course, been, like, whittled down and renegotiated and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. But in January 2013, a Florida appeal court reduced her convictions from four to two counts, and her attorney Uh, argued that her her false statements constituted a single offense. However, the court appeals noticed, noted that she gave false information during two separate police interviews several hours apart. So they argued that, like, the universal claims were, like, one and the same. Yeah. So, and that the, and that the Zanny, the Nanny, and the call with Kaylee were both. So they tried to, like, force four into two, which is just nuts to me. They're all separate lies, buddy. Isn't the same attorney the guy that she was, like, rumored to be, like, sleeping with? Yes, there were lots of rumors that they were sleeping together. I believe them. I don't know what to believe. I just believe that Kaylee's a liar. Um, oh, my goodness, not poor Kaylee. I believe that Casey's a liar. I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, she should be spending time in jail for child abuse and neglect and for lots and lots and lots of lying. So did they have to, like, put her in witness protection? Heck no, that girl is living her life. Ugh, I saw I, something the other day. I don't know how true it is because it was a tabloid, but I saw something saying that she's having another child. I saw that too. I believe it. That's crazy. I, I wouldn't put it past her. Well, but so, I, this is what I don't understand about cases of like children dying. You know, if it was an accident, one thing, and I'll apologize for every bad thought I ever had about Casey Anthony. Right. But, like, when kids get killed by parents, if you don't want your kid, if you don't want the responsibility of raising your kid, please, 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 just give them to someone else. Yeah. There's plenty of people that want them out there. There are so many couples who are desperate for a child, desperate for a child. I mean, I just watched a, a documentary about this one doctor who sold babies. I mean, which is totally wrong. That's not the point I'm trying to make here. But right, like, right. Families, families are so desperate; they're willing to illegally pay for a child to have one. Yeah, like, it happens all the time. If you don't want your kid, don't kill it. Give it to someone else who will love and raise it. Right. Yep. I completely agree. Don't even put yourself in the position to. Especially when your parents are as involved as Casey's parents were. Right. Like, you had the constant help. It wasn't like you were in your own apartment working, going to school full-time, like, managing a two-year-old. Like, you had parents that were like, I'll watch her. Like, I'll take care of her. Like, they felt like they raised her. Yeah. I mean, she had a little Winnie the Pooh set at her house. I know. Sweet. You guys should definitely watch the documentary on, it's on Hulu, right? I think it's it's either Hulu or Netflix. I can't remember, but it's definitely compelling. Yeah, definitely, definitely interesting. That's crazy. These these hometown. Well, they actually ended up being kind of kid murders too, because they were both kids. We didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Did the phone go out? Um, no, I accidentally had it on mute. Oh no, 
no, you're fine. I said, well, these hometown murders were definitely deep and interesting, and they actually ended up being child murders, too. We didn't mean to do that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you think about it, they both were. Dude, we could do so many more. Oh, my gosh. You know, I just realized. What? I almost said we could totally do, like, you could have done, like, Ted Bundy because he killed women in Colorado. But, like, he killed women in Florida, too. I know. We're connected. By we are connected killer. for life, Hannah. <laughs> for life. <laughs> Other than the fact that we were born two weeks apart and grew up best friends, basically. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And we live. 23 years within 20 minutes of each other. <laughs> yeah, and you lived in my house for a while. Oh, my gosh. Right. Um, we could totally talk about, we could do a Ted Bundy episode and just talk about the Colorado stuff and the Florida stuff. Bro, we definitely could. Actually, somebody that listens to the podcast suggested that we should do um, <sighs> a, a, serial, a serial killer episode. Anyway, our friend Hannah, so... That would definitely be interesting. We could do something where we just, like, dive into, like, we could do Ted Bundy for the first one, and then we could, like, pick another serial killer and do, like, a whole month of serial killers or something. Oh, my gosh. We totally should. I have so many favorite serial killers. Oh, me too. I'm I'm not glorifying serial killers. I'm just very fascinated by the psychology of that in a twisted way. Tina, don't lie. You're one of those girls that write them letters in prison. It was. No, <laughs> I'm not like I'm not like Ted Bundy's wife that got married during his trial. That's so creepy. Yeah. So our next podcast episode is definitely going to be serial killer themes, whether it's Ted Bundy or whoever. Hannah and I will definitely be sure to let you guys know. So, yeah, um, those are two interesting cases today, Hannah, huh? Dude, I know this is such a long episode. I know. Well, I do hope that you guys enjoy this. I know that a lot of you may not be working or maybe working a little bit less with all the corona quarantine madness going on. But I just want to say that I hope all of you are staying safe. I hope that you have all the resources that you need. And if any of you listening are missing some of the resources that you need, reach out to Hannah or I and we'll see what we can do to maybe help you guys through this time. Hannah, anything you want to leave us out with? A little jingle, a little tune, a little piece of advice? (laughs) Just be careful about the people you choose to associate with. Yep, I could not agree with a statement more. You guys, be careful who you allow to be in your space, allow to soak up your energy, all of that good stuff. It's okay to have two or three friends. <laughs> That's all you really need. <laughs> totally is. Because people people are unpredictable, but also use use your noggin. Right. I can't believe you know, I just said noggin. Oh, my noggin. gosh. Okay, Tim. Use your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, I do hope that you guys like this episode if you have any podcast suggestions for future episodes please send them to our instagram or reach out to us directly if you're listening and you know us personally please feel free to share this podcast with any of your true crime junkie friends Um, let them know what we're doing over here and yeah give the podcast 
five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you guys don't mind, it really helps us out with ratings and kind of getting shown a little bit more on there. So we appreciate all of you for listening and wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Take a bath. <laughs> Take a bath. Do all yeah, the things you should already do.